You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Our guest today is a repeat guest, but he's got a completely different story to tell. And that's Eddie White, works for Pacer Sports and Entertainment, uh, once ruled the radio talk show Airwaves here in Indianapolis. But what he has done in the realm of football and sports PR is nearly unparalleled. And he's coming back on the Leaders and Legends podcast today to talk about his 26 Super Bowl appearances. We'll put you in the game, appearances. Mm -hmm. Eddie, thank you. (laughs) It's great to be here. How are you? Doing great. It's very kind of you to come back to us. This will be broadcast right around the Super Bowl here in 2020. 26 Super Bowls. I've mentioned this to several people, and the look on their face is one of just pure astonishment. Like, how in the world did you even get uh, the... uh, possibility of being in 26 and being uh, attending 26 Super Bowls. Give us, please, a quick uh, synopsis of how this was even possible before we start talking about games and your personal experience. I'll be really honest. It's mind-nubbing to to hear you say that, you know, the the 26 Super Bowls. I mean, as a little kid, you know, playing football in the backyard or something like that, you, you always dreamed of maybe playing football one day, maybe playing in a Super Bowl, and then you become a college student and an adult and you work in sports and, and then all of a sudden you work one and then you work two and next thing you know, it's 26 and they were different capacities and we'll get into that today. But, uh, you know, it started when I first got to the Miami dolphins, uh, as their PR director, what the NFL does is they usually grab a PR person from each of the teams to come and work in the media center. Uh, and, and, you know, just, there to service all the media that have come from really all over the world to uh, cover the Super Bowl. So I, at the end of my first year with the Dolphins, they asked me to go. And so that was the first three Super Bowls. And then when I left the Dolphins, I hooked up with a contact from, from, through my years at Notre Dame who uh, was a guy named Bob Best who was hired by a guy named Jim Steig. And we'll get into how the Super Bowl grew to what it was because of Pete Roselle and Jim Steig. And this Bob Best guy, would bring this collection of people together from different walks of life. A lady who worked for the FBI in Ohio, the an assistant AD from Illinois, an assistant AD from Cal State Fullerton, uh, this crazy PR guy from what was Logo 7 and Logo Athletic and then Reebok and Puma and Adidas. The name changed over the years, but we were the same company on the east side of Indianapolis. But he'd bring this whole team together, and we basically did the NFL pregame show, the national anthem, the coin toss, and the operations. Did that for 15 Super Bowls. Then continued doing Reebok 
Tuck work at the Super Bowls. Then was with Kravitz Netty, did three more doing Kravitz Netty and doing Reebok stuff. Then did one Super Bowl as a Reebok rep my last year at Reebok and as a member of the uh, the host committee of Indianapolis that was down in Dallas. And then my last Super Bowl was here as a member of the host committee in Indianapolis. So you add the, all those up, it's 26 Super Bowls. And you as we covered in a previous podcast and and if you're listening to this one please go back and listen to what was a, a fun and informative and dare i say rollicking initial podcast with Eddie which he talks about his entire career uh, but you obviously grew up a sports fan uh, born in Pennsylvania uh, as i recall grew up a Jets fan mm-hmm. do you remember Super Bowl 3 where the Jets beat the Colts yeah because i was a little kid then and i like both the Jets and the Colts. And I used to, when I got older, I'd go down to Memorial Stadium in Baltimore and sneak down on the, on the, uh, the field after games at Memorial Stadium. And my friend and I would take dirt and grass from Memorial Stadium and put it in our pockets. And then we tried to sneak in the Colts locker room uh, to see Ted Marchabroda, who had ties to my home area. And we wanted to say hi to Burt Jones, the old the rust oh, rifle. Sure. And then Joe Namath, being from Pennsylvania, you know, I, I followed him. And uh, I did like the University of Alabama back in those days. When I was a real little kid for some reason. So I was a just Jets-Colts guy. And... Um, uh, you know, and uh, so pr- that was probably the first Super Bowl. But then I remember, you know, Kansas City winning. I think that was Super Bowl four. four. And then I do remember Super Bowl five when in the pregame show, I think it was on NBC, the pregame show, Joe Namath is a guest. This is Super Bowl five. Joe Namath says, I like the Colts to win by a field goal. The Colts played the Dallas Cowboys and? Jim O'Brien kicked the last second field goal and the Colts beat the Dallas Cowboys by a field goal. So and I Joe Namath. That, that was the first game winning field goal in the Super Bowl. And it was the only one until Vinatieri kicked one for the Patriots to beat the Rams, if I recall. Yeah, he beat the Rams. And then he, he turned on and beat Carolina, you know, in, in Houston. And he's made a lot of those big kicks. But, uh, but, but you remember Super Bowl one? Do you remember the Super Bowl where the no, Packers no. played the Chiefs? No, I remember as a little kid getting the book, uh, uh, a Bart Starr book. And it was something about, hey, he had won the first world championship game. Because remember, it wasn't called the Super Bowl the first two years, I believe. Right? And, Speaking uh, of Alabama quarterbacks, Bart Starr. Yeah, Alabama won the first three Super Bowls. Did you stick with the Jets as a Jets fan uh, uh, through your adulthood? Or did you start to kind of move because the Jets just were pretty terrible? No, I, I kind of kept an eye on, on uh, Jets and the Colts. Uh, it's so ironic they end up living in the town with the Colts. Um, but the Jets, uh, because of Joe Namath, really, they're, 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 I just I just thought Joe Willie. And, you know, growing up in Northeastern PA, we saw the Joe Namath TV show. And, you know, he'd have Leroy Neiman on and Raquel Welch. And he'd have all these celebrities on. Joe Namath owned New York. Absolutely. And um, very engaging, likable person. And uh, so, yeah, I kind of lynched onto him. And, and, of course, if you're a Jets fan – uh, and a Colts fan, I guess at that time, one of the teams that you grow to not like is your Miami Dolphins. And Correct. I did. I used to hate that the Jets would always lose at 4 o'clock on the AstroTurf at, at New Orleans Bowl <laughs> with Zonka and Kick just running and Morris and Greasy and Jim Mandich and Larry Seipel and all these people. I hated them all. And the next thing you know, I'm the, the PR guy for the Miami Dolphins. And uh, working with Larry Seipel was then a, a special teams coach for us. And Don Shula, and you meet Zonka, you meet Morris, and you meet Garrow and Earl and Greasy and, and on and on and on. 
you mentioned Don Shula, and we were talking about Super Bowl three. So Don Shula was the coach of the Colts. The Colts, this was before the merger. So the Colts went 13-1 and one that year, I believe, and won the NFL championship. I think they shut out maybe the Browns, it like 27 Cleveland. to nothing. It, be, it killed Cleveland, yeah. And so then he becomes coach of the Dolphins, which is certainly traceable to the fact that he lost Super Bowl three. Super Bowl three was played in the Orange Bowl. Did you ever – was that ever brought up? Did Shula ever talk about Super Bowl three? Or now he's coaching in the stadium where he lost the Super Bowl, which, which it's tough to think about it now in 2020, but it was probably along with the Pirates beating the Yankees in the World Series, I think in 60, the greatest sports upset prior to – the U.S. hockey at Lake Placid. It was a tremendous upset where people thought teams from the AFL could never beat a team from the NFL. Talk a little bit about that, and did Shula ever mention it? He probably did when he first got to Miami, you know, with the media and stuff like that, but not in our conversations. Uh, you know, he was long past that. And, you know, in fact, my first year in Miami was our last year in the Orange Bowl, and then we were in Joe Robbie Stadium uh, for the rest of the way. Um, but you mentioned the greatest upset. You know, I don't think sometimes you got – if you talk to football people, older football people, they get it how important that game was. You talk to a guy like Paul McGuire. A lot of your listeners may know him. That's the guy who used to do games on ESPN right. with uh, Patrick and Theismann. Well, Paul McGuire was an old Buffalo Bill. He's an old AFLer. And he said that game, the Jets had a whole league behind him. And he said, because they were an 18-point underdog, I believe they were. Pretty which close. Is, which is, think about it, 18 points. That's, in football, it's a lot. And uh, for, you know, for Namath to do the guarantee, you know, the night before, the couple days before that, and then to go out and beat them like they did. And the score wasn't a blowout score. But if you watch the game, they kind of dominated the lines of scrimmage. And Baltimore made some stupid mistakes. They missed some wide receivers and some other things that were open. Uh, but they won. I mean, the Jets, and I remember the, the, it was Kurt Gowdy. The, the Jets have shocked the football world, and that's, that's what they did. And that one game really set the tone. To me, it's, it's that game and then the introduction of Monday Night Football are the two things that have put the NFL on the, the highway of where – the superhighway, I guess we should say it, uh, where they are today. It's a Super Bowl three victory by the, 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 the Jets, the upset, and then uh, the implementation of Monday Night Football, which ironically the Jets played in the first Monday Night Football game of all time in Cleveland. Yeah, that's right. And they lost, as I recall. I think they did. Bill Nelson was the quarterback for Cleveland. I don't know where I parked today, but I do know Bill Nelson was the quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. Sorry to bring up all these losses. Well, Eddie, I guess we did talk about Super Bowl three. And the AFL wins Super Bowl four. That's with the Chiefs, who are famously in the Super Bowl this year. Um, it is the Chiefs' owner, Lamar Hunt, uh, who coins the term Super Bowl, obviously playing on what was happening in college football at the time. So fast forward, uh, you've worked for uh, Notre Dame. You've worked for um, worked at the Miami Dolphins. And then you, I'm going to say, enter the private sector, but the non-competitive league sector is probably a better way to put it. And your career of Super Bowls begins. The first Super Bowl you attended is Super Bowl Twenty One, and that's probably best known as the Phil Simms Super Bowl, where he basically lit up the Denver Broncos and John Elway. As a small-town kid from Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania, what was it like to be there, and what were some of your first 
thoughts and what went through your mind? I can't help but smile now thinking about it. I think it's anytime you do something really special uh, the first time, you know, it just stands out. And you know, I think I might have had the perfect Super Bowl be my first. First of all, it's in the most beautiful setting for a football game, Pasadena, California. It is perfect. The mountains, you know, the beautiful Pasadena, the Rolls Bowl. It's just a beautiful setting for football. Pasadena it was absolutely perfect. But what hit me was uh, there was a Hall of Fame linebacker named Sam Huff. Remember he played, yeah, played for the Redskins and the Giants? And he was a longtime Marriott representative, and so he would do the Marriott hotels for the, for the uh, uh, Dolphins. And so I got to know him during our season, and I run into him in the press room at the Super Bowl during the week. And he says, hey, what are you doing Thursday night? Do you have plans? I'm like, no, what do you got? He goes, well, I have two tickets to the NFL alumni dinner like at Century City Plaza, whatever the hell it is, some swank L.A. place, right? Again, I'm from Wilkes-Barre. I've never been to L.A. before, right? And he said, uh, would you like to go? I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. So he said, great. So we, we're in a cab, and I'm in this cab with Sam Huff, and he's telling football stories as we as we go to this thing in Pasadena or in, it's very in, famous, in L.A. very violent uh, – they had a TV documentary, The Violent World of Sam Huff. Yeah, just – and he was just a big hitter and a Hall of Famer, very famous at the time. Like Ditka, or like Ditka, but guess he had that old style football to him, right? So we get there and we're early. And he says, Hey, let's go have a drink. And I swear to God, we walk into this bar at this hotel, Century City, big fancy hotel. And we're sitting there and we start talking. And there's this, these two ladies sitting to our right. And the one lady looks very familiar. And I go over and I have this picture somewhere. And we start talking. It's a lady named Dionne Warwick, and with her is her niece, who then is not known, Whitney Houston. As Whitney had this gigantic afro, and they're <laughs> sitting there, and we, we start talking with them. And I, I, the, I probably had the old Instamatic, you know, the old thing, you, you swipe it, whatever. And I took a picture with the two of them, which I have. And so we schmooze. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is, this, is, this is Hollywood. This is the Super Bowl. So I'm thinking everything's great. So then every Super Bowl, there's the commissioner's party on a Friday night, which is a big swank affair. It's always it's the commissioner's 7,000 closest friends. <laughs> and they, what they did that year was they rented the Universal Studios and had the private party, the commissioner's party, at Universal Studios. So we get off the buses. They, you know, we bus over the media guys, and we get off the bus, and you get on these, these trams, and these trams take you up to the entrance and drop you off where the party is. And I swear to God, I get off the tram, and I'm walking into the party, and in front of me is Bob Hope. Behind me is Joe DiMaggio. At that point, I realized this is something really special this Super Bowl thing. So uh, then you have the game. Of course, we're in the press box, and we're and this there's Giants, and it's the uh, Denver Broncos. Game ends, and they give you assignments to go, and you go get quotes from Phil Simms. You go get quotes from Phil McConkie. You go get quotes from this guy, this guy. And I said, I'll take Mark Bavaro, tied into the New York Giants. Notre Dame? Who played at Notre Dame, was at Notre Dame when I was there. And the one guy says, Mark Bavaro, has not spoken to the media all year, refuses to. I'm like, yeah, they'll talk to me. So I go down, and I walk in the locker room, and I see Bavaro. He's like, you know, he had not seen me since probably a year or two, year and a half since we worked together at Notre Dame. Just real quick, this is 87, so how old are you? Well, I'm... uh, January of 87. uh, 25... 
Why do you ask me these stupid questions? I don't know. <laughs> 25, 23, 24. Well, you're still a babe in the woods yeah, in still, a lot yeah, of ways. I, oh, I'm a young kid. I'm a youngster. And, uh, but anyway, so I walk in. I see Bavaro. And he's, I say, Eddie White, what are you doing here? I said, Mark, my man, congratulations, man. Bada bing, bada boom. I said, hey, I'm working for the Dolphins. Now I said, hey, but I'm doing Super Bowl stuff. Can I get some quotes from you? He's like, yeah, sure. So I get all these quotes from Bavaro. And I go up and I type it. You know, this is the old days. You type it on the thing. You put your initials at the bottom. And, it, and the sheet goes to, I believe the gentleman's name was Joe Brown, uh, the head of the NFL. And he edits them, you know, and then they distribute them to the media. And he goes, who's this EW? Like, oh, it's the new guy from the Dolphins. He goes, I want to see him. I go, he goes, all right, what's the joke? Did you make these up? I go, what are you talking about? Did you make up these Mark Bavaro quotes? I'm like, no, he told me. He goes, I live in New York, work at the league office. Mark Bavaro doesn't talk to the press. I go, talks to me. And we got the quotes. So the New York media were blown away that Mark Bavaro, they had quotes that Mark Bavaro said. So I scored some points with the league office. So, so the first and Bavaro Super, had a hell of a game. He had a huge game. So that, that's my first Super Bowl. So between meeting Whitney Houston and Deion Warwick and driving with Sam Huff and Bob Hope and Joe DiMaggio and you know doing the Mark Bavaro thing, I had a great first Super Bowl. So let's, let's do our, our, our plug here for a second. Uh, you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. So you mentioned uh, Joe DiMaggio. We are here with Eddie White, Pacer Sports and Entertainment, and attendee of 26 Super Bowls. You mentioned uh, Joe DiMaggio and Bob Hope and other luminaries. Did you turn around and say, hey, Yankee Clipper, it's... My name's Eddie White. I mean, at what point did you get up the, I hate to say the stones, but I can't think of another way to say it. When but, did I become a schmoozer? Yeah, when I, did you get up and say, hey, look, hi, Mr. Hope. You know, my name's Eddie White. I didn't have it then. I didn't have it then. <laughs> I, I was still probably an eight ball back then, batting 111. No, I, I didn't have the guts to say hello to Bob Hope or Joe DiMaggio. Um, uh, I just didn't, but it just, you know, it just stood out to me that uh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, you know, if you're my, I mean, you're my age, you know, you know what Bob Hope did for this country and, you know, going over with the soldiers every year, the Christmas shows and seeing Sing Silent Night and, and all that stuff. And then Joe DiMaggio, you know, that was like my dad's favorite baseball player and he was Mr. Coffee and he dated Marilyn Monroe. And it, it, it's like, my God, there they are, you know, they're not statues. There they are. <laughs> and it, just, it hit me that uh, the Super Bowl is a big deal. They're not on the movie tone news. No. Uh, the next Super Bowl uh, is probably best known as the Doug Williams Super Bowl that you attended, and that's the Washington, uh, again against Denver, where uh, they exploded for, was it 35 points in the second quarter? And and uh, did it start to feel more real to you as, you know, your second and third and fourth ones start to get under your belt? It's funny. I, look, I start to make a list of Super Bowls. Like In some Super Bowls, there's like three or four things stand out, like the first one. And this one was more of it was work. Uh, but the one thing I remember, which I, I want to kick myself because I did not really appreciate the historic significance of what the hell I was doing until down the road. But one of my deals was to, when the game was over, I helped escort, uh, Eddie Robinson into the, uh, 
Redskins locker room so he can congratulate Doug Williams. And of course, Doug Williams, you know, the first African-American quarterback to win a Super Bowl, played his college ball at Grambling for Eddie Robinson. And, um, and it was like 10 years later when we got back to San Diego, I believe, the coin flip for the NFL was Doug Williams, Eddie Robinson, and Joe Gibbs. Of course, he was the coach that Redskins sure. team. So that was the, that's like the only thing that stood out from that Super Bowl to me, which is a big thing. I just wish I knew what the heck was going on then. I wish I had my little trusty Instamatic camera but, uh, to get a picture. But uh, it was kind of cool to take in Mr. Robinson and, and to see that moment with him and Doug Williams uh, embracing in that tiny locker room in San Diego. So at what point, at which Super Bowl did you, had you had left the Dolphins? Uh, the next one, which is Miami, which is that's the one that was Super Bowl twenty three was in Miami. It was uh, the one that Joe Montana come back over the Cincinnati Bengals, um, and it was uh, not only my team, my city. It was this was my press box. I designed the press box. It's gone now. I mean, I remember it, you it, saying that yeah, in the I previous the podcast that that was yeah. one of your Joe Robbie. I, I designed the first press box in Joe Robbie Stadium, and very proud of that Super Bowl. Um, but it was most known for Montana's comeback, which Notre Dame people, eh, we've seen that, been there, done that. Montana made comeback. Um, <laughs> he famously threw the pass to I think to John Taylor, and they won twenty to sixteen. That was the, yep, that was the game where Montana uh, somewhat sealed his uh, legend as being cool under fire when. He's directing the uh, final game-winning drive, and in the middle of the huddle, he points to the crowd and tells, asks his team, hey, isn't that John Candy sitting there in the stands? That's how cool he was under most pressure situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, was- but your first two Super Bowls were blowouts. This one was not. This was a no. That bite. wasn't. But but we'll get into it. It used to be when we get into it because that was my last one as a PR guy for an NFL team, and then started a run of working for uh, whether it was Logo Seven, Logo Athletic, Reebok, Puma, Adidas, whatever our name was, but working on the pregame show, national anthem, whatever. And then we did hit a run of. It seemed like every game was a blowout, which which when we get down the road here, we get the Super Bowl twenty five was was the Murphy's Law of all Murphy's laws, but. Uh, so let's talk about Super Bowl twenty five. That I hate to. Well, for I got. Let me go to twenty four. Let me go quick. Quick, the, the, quick story about twenty four. How much time the, do we have? Yeah, it was a blowout. So we got to talk about the game. Forty nine is blowout. Okay, the so Broncos. we had we had uh, it was the forty uh, ers over Denver fifty five ten, and uh, first of all, Archie Manning was King Archie in the pregame pre our pregame show. Little did I know his son would be coming here years and years and years and years later. But at halftime, they had this big float. We didn't do halftime show. Big float, and Pete Fountain. Uh, the, the the guy yeah. from New Orleans, you know, Clarinet, yeah. he's a, and the thing is, they couldn't get the the boat, the float out of the tunnel in Old New Orleans, so they had to cut the goalpost to get it out. And then they had the halftime show, and then they put a new goalpost in before the third quarter. That's one of my <laughs> memories of Super Bowl twenty four. And the anthem, and so the first anthem singer I ever worked with was Aaron Neville, who was very good. Aaron Neville was very good, but Super Bowl twenty five. Super That's Bowl twenty five is That's the one. We keep, or I, not we, I, I keep personifying these Super Bowls. Um, the most famous moment of that Super Bowl didn't happen during the game, and we'll talk about that. And that's Whitney Houston singing the national anthem as the United States was about to go to war. And the most infamous part of that Super Bowl happened on the field when Scott Norwood of the Bills just barely 
missed a 47-yard field goal, I believe, that would have won the game for the Bills. Instead, it sent them on a spin of four straight Super Bowl losses. You mentioned earlier about meeting Whitney Houston with Dion Warwick, but you had a front row seat to one of the greatest moments in television music history, and that is Whitney Houston's rendition. Go ahead. I always look at Super Bowl 25. That might be my favorite of all of them, just for a lot of things. My my whole family, my mom and dad, my sisters were there for that one. Like you said, we were going to the Gulf War, so the premise of the pregame was to have a, a salute to America. It was the first game that there were metal detectors for people to go through to get in. The security was intense. They had guys with bazookas on the roof of the press box to blow anything out of the air that came near that stadium. Uh, and that was where, yeah, it began a... a long-time friendship with Whitney Houston because it is a longer story, which I think I told with you last time, where because of her uncle playing for my grandfather, we kind of bonded. But she, and when she sang the anthem, she, I was as close to her as I am to you right now. I, she was on a little, like, one-foot uh, box, and she sang this anthem. She did uh, mouth the anthem. Lip-synced. Lip-synced. Which is and, well-known. Which is, a lot of people do it, but but it was it was obviously her. But the the beforehand, we had played a, a Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA, mm-hmm. And showing videos of soldiers, men and women, saying goodbye to their families going to war. I remember telling Mayor Ballard this story, and he said he was one of those soldiers at that time. He would and say he was one of those Marines. He was one of the Marines. That's true. That's right. He would say that. And 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 they're, they're going off, and we we play. You know, God bless the USA. And everyone in Tampa Stadium had an American flag, and she sings. And yes, Joe Stasniak was on that Buffalo team. You know, local WIBC guy. No one had a dry eye. It's the greatest anthem at the greatest moment. And then they, when they released it, it went gold and, you know, and whatever. And, and, and it was just a, uh, and to think that my family was there to, to enjoy it uh, meant so much to me. The Murphy's Law element of this game was uh, up, in the net, up until that time, you know, we would do a, a championship shirt and hat that we were the licensee of the NFL that you'd give to, you know, the year before when San Francisco won, it said 49ers, Super Bowl champs. This is a great whatever. story. I love this so, story. Uh, so, and again, that was 55 to 10, and we just thought, well, we got a lot of these Super Bowls, you know, somebody's winning by a lot, you know, whatever. So Woods put the final score on the T-shirt. You know, you pre-print them. Buffalo Bills, Super Bowl champs, New York Giants, Super Bowl champs, you leave a spot for the score. So in the corner of the big sombrero at Tampa, we had a couple heat seal machines and some numbers – and some little old lady to do it for us. And we're like, well, hopefully somebody's taking a knee with a minute left in the game and we can get like 10, 15 of them done and get them out on the field. Well, no, it's going to come down to a, a winning kick. Like, ah, oh, Murphy's lots. They come down to a winning kick. So I think there was a timeout call. So we start running, put the Buffalo Bill shirts on. The, I think we had two heat seal machines, and it's going to be 22 to 20. So they start making these shirts, Buffalo Bills 2-2-2-0. That's three twos. Per shirt. Very interesting point. Three twos on one shirt. Okay, blow them through. And I have, I don't know, five or six in my hand. Other guy, Roger Hayes, has a couple in his hand. We walk up next to the Buffalo Bills cheerleaders. They're on my left. I'm showing them the shirt, you know, being the big guy. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get one of these later. And did one of the shirts the, have your phone number on it? No, no. As the ball's kicked and it goes to the right, we're right on the field. Because I think I had like Thurman Thomas and Kelly, and he had Bruce Smith and uh, Marv Levy, whatever the assignments were. And we're walking on, we see the ball go to the right. We did like a pirouette back into the tunnel, 
dropped the shirts in the garbage, no eBay back then, and said, take those off. We need Giants 2019. And they run the Giants. So by the time we got the shirts, we didn't have them on the field, but we did get them on Jeff Hostetler in the locker room for his interview with Brent Musburger. And the next day in USA Today, Rudy Martsky, the great TV sports columnist guy back then for USA Today, says the NFL was inundated by calls around the country saying that they knew the games were fixed because the league had T-shirts with the score already on them. Nobody knew that we had the capability to put scores on. So that was the one and only time that I think any pro league has ever put the final score of a championship game on a piece of apparel. It was Murphy's Law, and we, uh, we somehow survived it. Did you keep one? Did you ever get one of those? Well, shirts? that's the interesting. Now back to Whitney Houston. I always kept one from the locker room, from the official batch, because you print them at re- for retail sale, and they're all like perfectly, you know, lined up. These the numbers are off a little bit. The two's tr- crooked, and you know it means something. It came right from the locker room, so I always kept one. So I wore it the next day when I had to go meet Whitney at her suite at noon on Monday, the day after the Super Bowl. I wear it. You had to meet her. She wanted some more Super Bowl stuff. We always gave the celebrities some Super Bowl product like jackets and hats and glom. And she wanted more. I saw her at after she sang the anthem. We took her up to her suite and she said, can I get some more glom? Tell you how times have changed with security and stuff. And I'm like, sure. What do you want? She goes, I'm in suite whatever at the Tampa Bay West Shore whatever. Uh, Can you be there tomorrow at noon? I said, yeah, sure. So Monday I drove her hotel, took a box of glom. I walk up to the suite, ring the thing, boom, go in, and I put it down. She goes, I want that shirt. And it's, of course, the Super Bowl locker room shirt, 20, 20 to 19 Giants. And I'm like, well, this is the official locker room shirt. It's kind of mine. It's like a one of a kind. And she goes, I know. I want that shirt. And I said, well, I can't walk around naked. I mean, you know what? And she goes, hold on. She got her brother, Gary Garland, who played basketball at DePaul back in the day, oh, yeah. Mark Aguirre and yeah. Ray Meyer. And he's a backup singer for her. And she says, Gary, go get some stuff ready. And he comes back with this jacket and T-shirts and hats, all kinds of nippy ink with Whitney Houston stuff. And she goes, okay, here. She goes, take all you want. She, so I took a T-shirt out, and I was thinner then. I took my T-shirt off. I folded it and gave it to her. And she goes, oh, I love your cologne. She goes, I, 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 so hold on. I, I, remember, I remember this like yesterday. I put on that Whitney Houston T-shirt, and I go, hold on a second. I go, this may be the greatest moment of my life. My life has peaked right now that I am literally taking a T-shirt off my back and giving it to Whitney Houston in her suite in Tampa. I said, this is the greatest moment of my life, and gave her the T-shirt. And then when, her, the, gold, when the Star Spangled Banner went gold, I got this big package at, at Logo 7, and it was the gold record, Star Spangled Banner, Whitney Houston. Oh. And there was a plaque at the bottom that says, to Eddie White, thanks for the shirt off your back, love Whitney. She sent me a gold record, the Star Spangled Banner. I got that at home. Did you ever think about saying, well, give me the jacket you wore on national television while you were singing the national anthem, and I'll give you my that Super Bowl a, shirt? It was like a running suit. It was like weird. She wore like a white running like a suit, white pants, and white pants and some kind of a white top with red stuff on her mm-hmm. or something. She had her hair up on the thing. She looks like she's going for a run. And because she, she did a concert the night before in Tampa, and it was going somewhere, I think, Monday night. But uh, that's where our... My, you know, I'd see her when she'd come in here for at Deer Creek and stuff like that. I'd run into her, and um, uh, it was just that Super Bowl because of all the stuff, you know, the Americana, her anthem, uh, the, the T-shirt thing, the, the last second, all, all the craziness. That was one of my uh, one of my favorite ones. You mentioned meeting her at a previous Super Bowl, and then you just re, uh, recounted the experience at Super Bowl twenty five. 
Did you stay in touch with her between then? In other words, were you able to see her some other time? Or was it just like, hey, do you remember Between 21 me? and 25? Yeah. No, I don't even think I ever said to her I met you at 21. Because, I, I, you know, it was more Dionne Warwick was the one that I met. She was the star. She just, this is her niece who's getting in the business. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> Four years, five years later, she's singing the anthem at Super Bowl. I guess she did get in the business. All right. Moving ahead, you were there for some historic moments on the field. Is there a particular performance that you witnessed that made you stand in awe? I mean, Montana was unbelievable in Super Bowl twenty four. Uh, Steve Young was unbelievable in uh, Super Bowl uh, twenty nine through six touchdowns, but maybe talk about a few players you witnessed or saw and just couldn't believe what you were seeing. Well, uh, it's, it's God, there's so many games. I mean, obviously somebody has to play well in each game to get the W. Um, yeah. I think of those, uh, some of those Patriots victories with, you know, Venetary making the, the, the key kick. Uh, I remember Aikman so accurate in uh, a couple of the Super Bowls. I think they won three, uh, the 49ers were dominant. They had some big wins. I mean, Steve Young had the had the huge game. Was was you know, and that's the one where he had the monkey on his back. You know, Montana can win, but you can't win, and he he did win. I I think one of my favorites was when John Elway, who I remember seeing walking the length of the field. So that's from back of the end zone to out the other end zone across the middle of the field after they had gotten beat 55-10 to 10 by San Francisco 100 years before that in the Super Bowl with his then-wife. Uh, and I didn't even know John Elway then. He was the guy who plays for Denver. Now you go years and years later, he's now a logo athletic guy. He's one of our guys. He's a guy that we fly in here to Indianapolis with, with Troy Aikman and Dan Marino to shoot TV commercials for logo athletic. And I play in his golf tournament. I know his wife and know his kids. He now wins – well, he ended up winning two, but he wins his first Super Bowl, and to play as well as he did, and and that yeah, there's always like not always, but mostly Super Bowls. There's always some weird story that that they kind of bring into it, and there's two that revolving about John, and that one is one you know we were all hoping he'd win because he's a logo athletic guy, and he had this long career, and he just couldn't win, couldn't win, and he wins. So if you if you look at the clips from that game, as soon as the game's over, he is mobbed. There's media That's camera. Right all around him. And I had the assignment, because you know him, to get the hat to him that says Denver Broncos Super Bowl champs. So I cannot get – he is six, seven deep around him. So I swear to God, I get on my knees, and I'm crawling through the legs of NFL Films people. I'm ruining a good pair of khakis, and I get to the bottom, and yeah, everybody's yelling, John, 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 John. And, I, and I've done this a few times. I yell – Logo 7, Eddie White. I'm yelling my own name. Logo 7, Eddie White. So imagine he's in a sea of people yelling, John, John, John. Here's Logo sure. 7, Eddie White. He looks down, Eddie, the big smile. I'm like, my man, I stick the, my arm up with the hat. He grabs it, and he puts the hat on. So, boom, mission accomplished, okay? So I kind of get the <laughs> hell out of there. The khakis are ruined. And then I go and hook up with a guy who I've met years and years before, a guy named George Toma. He's oh, considered the, guy. the greatest groundskeeper of all time. He's, not, he's 90 now, right? Yeah. He worked for the Kansas City Royals for 100 years and for the Kansas City Chiefs, and he's the god of sod, okay? And, you know, he goes, grass grows by the inches, it dies by the feet. 
Get it? F-E-E-T. And anyway, so he, he got his first job in the business taking out the bleachers at the Wilkes-Barre Barons basketball games in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. My grandfather hired him. Oh, you're kidding me. He's from Swearsville, Pennsylvania, from Edwardsville. So we connected at like one of my first Super Bowls. So now I know this guy, George Tom, would always see each other. So after games, I would give him a couple of the hats from the losing team. You know, they're collectibles. And he would give me a pylon. From that was on the game. I have a bunch of pylons. Some's an end zone with the G, with the Super Bowl logo. Some is the big straight orange thing. Are you they know, signed, with, or do you like? Notate? Well, so I had him sign them. I had yeah. George sign one, but but a lot of them were just they were they were game used. They were on the field for the Super Bowl. That's real deal, right? So this time I went in. I said, George, in your favor. Uh, he goes, Yeah, here's your thing. I said, I'm not going to keep it. I said, Can I get the goal line one? And he's like, Yeah, why? He goes, I want to give it to John Elway. Uh, he's one of our guys. So I get it, and by that time, I went back up to the press box or, or our booth. We were in the booth then. And I come back down, and I go in, and John's in there with his dad, his agent, his family, whatever like that. He's just celebrating. I walk in. I say, man, good to see you again. You got the hat on. I hug him. I said, I got something for you. I said, you're a millionaire. You're a Super Bowl champ. You got everything. You got a car dealership. You don't need anything, but I'm going to give you something you don't have and you want. I said, here you go. This is a pylon from the end zone for the first Super Bowl victory you ever had. And he was like, that is so awesome. And he gave it to me. Probably, I'm assuming for a he still has it. guy, that's probably worth everything. Because he doesn't think to get it or no one. Probably they're all gone. You know, they, they have to be able to take that stuff so it don't get stolen. But uh, that, was, that was one of my memories of, of his accomplishments on the field and after the game having some quirky little goofy story. And his second Super Bowl victory, which is over uh, Atlanta. Is it the Falcons, for, correct? Chris Chandler, the old Colts quarterback. Oh, yeah. That's out right. of Miami. Is at Joe Robbie Stadium. Mm-hmm. So you get to go back to your press box. Yep. I was back there for that one. Uh-huh. So as someone who worked for the Dolphins during the uh, Shula Marino years, which all of us who are Dolphins fans <laughs> from Super Bowl six, which they lost to the Cowboys and suffered, you know, and we prospered through the undefeated season and we thought for sure Marino and Shula were going to win one Super Bowl. Instead, they lost to the only one that they went to together. Was it just a little bit bittersweet? Like, man, I wish I was here covering. I wish I was here watching Marino uh, win his Super Bowl instead of Elway winning his. No, but what was one of my dreams that I always wanted was to when you, especially when I went to a lot of these things, um, to think what what would that feeling be like if this is your team. In the Super Bowl, because when you go there, it's basically the whole football world cares about two teams. You know, all the logos in town are the this Super Bowl will be Kansas City and San Francisco. You know, all the talk is can everywhere you go. There's pictures of Chiefs. Like you, you, you two teams own the football world. I always thought that you know you spend a whole season as a PR guy for a team. What a rush that would be to see like the Dolphins logo. Everywhere, you know, that's my team. You know, you're not sleeping all week because all the interviews, everything you got to sure. do. But what what a rush that would be! Oh, that was one of my regrets. I wish I could have been with a team that that won a championship and um, just to experience what that those two weeks would have been like. And so it, it didn't mean anything to me that we were back in Miami because you know we're. I was just thrilled again to do another Super Bowl and and by that time. What goofy memories are going to – because every – almost every Super Bowl, there's something goofy 
that happens that that to me is memorable i mean the only reason you're talking to me i mean if i was a game official you would be talking to me because there's probably nothing memorable hopefully be, you didn't screw up a game but it, it's because the goofy stuff behind the saints you want another you want another behind the saints please okay minnesota first super bowl they had in minnesota it's freezing never gets above zero it was it was 26 1992 washington over buffalo okay it's freezing. It, we're there two weeks. Never gets above zero. People are the nicest people in the world. And you know, the halftime show is a little weird. It was like Dorothy Hamlin, Brian Boitano, whatever like that. Harry Connick Jr. Did remember him? Did the anthem? He brought uh, Jill Goodacre, his wife, with him. Victoria hey, Supermodel. I'm still waiting for Van Halen to do the halftime show. Van Halen? Did they've never done a halftime or no, a pregame? And it's a disgrace. You've had the Rolling Stones, the Who. They've had everybody else, right? But anyway, the crazy story. So Washington. You know what song they play when the Redskins score a touchdown? Hail to the Redskins. One of the great fight songs of all time, right? Absolutely. Dun, 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 right? Okay. So the Redskins score early and often. And we had this California guy, tan, bleach blonde, long hair, was always smoking funny cigarettes, you know, before he'd do the work. But he was one of our sound guys. And he would be the guy we'd cue. We had the thing. We'd touchdown with score. We'd look. No flags. No flags. No flags. No flags. Boom, hail to the Redskins, and then hold on, kill it because I kicked the extra point. Extra point, it's good. No flags, no flags. Cue, hail to the Redskins. Da 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 da. So the Bills song is shout. Make me want to shout da, 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 if they score, right? So the Redskins are scoring. They're scoring. They're scoring. They're up by a lot. Ended up not being a large margin at the end, but they're up by a lot early. It was over early. Finally, the Buffalo Bills score. We go. No flags, no flags, no flags. Shout, Q shout. He hits the button. He hits hail to the Redskins. <laughs> He'd been hitting it for the whole first half. He, so you're the Buffalo fans. You're getting killed. You finally score at the Super Bowl in Minnesota, and you hear, dan, 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 dan. You're like, what, what, what? Right. And then we, there, was some, there was some bad words said to this guy, like, it's the wrong bleeping song. Boom, pull, and then went right in the shout. But it happens. That's, that's the goofy stuff that we, uh, that we experience. Among the many things. Just imagine, uh, I guess, if you were at uh, Notre Dame Stadium and you accidentally played uh, Hail to the Victors instead of a... Oh, that would not go over well. No, <laughs> no, no. You're, you're in Indianapolis. Uh, you're working hard. You've become a, a fabric of, of not only sports, but well-known by many people. You had a terrific talk show with Bob Kravitz. It was a lot of fun to listen to really pioneering in some ways. Uh, I don't know that I've ever heard Kravitz take so much grief. And uh, you were a wonderful team. But that becomes uh, Super Bowl 41. It's Peyton Manning Super Bowl. The Colts beat the Bears. Tell us about your experiences there. That was the one that I, I think you asked me earlier, did I, you know, what kind of feelings you get when you're in your stadium? That's my stadium. You know, so here we are. We're in Miami, my old stomping grounds. That's my stadium. And the team from my city is now trying to win a Lombardi. And, you know, I lived there long enough that there were days, 
And when I first moved here, where I remember talking to Pete Ward, I mean, we never could have dreamed Lombardi would come to Indianapolis. You could never dream that would happen. And who's Pete Ward? And now Pete Ward, of course, is the the big shot at the Indianapolis Colts, Jim Irsay's right-hand guy. And he'd been with the Colts since they moved from Baltimore and is still there today. And uh, very loyal to the Irsay family and to the Colts and just a great, great guy. And, you know, uh, I would help the Colts when I first moved here with game operations and stuff like that and doing anything I could do to help them. And to think that, that – we were in the Super Bowl and had a chance to win the Super Bowl and bring a Lombardi back to Indianapolis and doing it in Miami. It was perfect. And I was sitting at the, the, the rain that fell during the Prince and all that was the tears of all those old Hoosiers that never thought this day would happen. Uh, and it and were did happen. You, were you, did you have your radio talk show? But yeah. Did you already have it or was it then and gone or were you still doing it when Peyton Manning won the Super Bowl? Uh, with the Colts? No, we were we were just. I was just Reebok then. As we when when we played New Orleans is when we had the talk show. Okay, I believe okay, that's correct. So you mentioned earlier about Steve Young winning the Super Bowl, beating the Chargers mm-hmm. as a member of the Forty ers and getting that monkey off his back. How did you feel about here's Peyton Manning getting that monkey off his back after the Colts had just beaten? the Patriots in a thrilling, to say the least, AFC championship game here at the Hoosier Dome. Well, he was just like with with, uh, John uh, Elway being a logo guy and Steve Young being a logo guy, Steve Warren had to. Peyton Manning was a logo guy. I say logo guy, but we may have been Adidas, Puma, then I know what we were. But, you know, Peyton was with us since his first year with the Colts. He came right out of Tennessee and signed with us. And um, I remember at the – Two weeks before at the uh, conference championship game here at the Dome, uh, remember we, we had we had I was help again I was Reebok then whatever our name was and we were going to give out the hats and we had uh, uh, like we were on like a tray of food a push tray with wheels we had a boxes with the Patriots hats we had a box with the Colts hats and remember the way that game went. Oh sure, yeah. it was a terrific so game. We, we were going we were at the Colts end and then all of a sudden we wheeled down the Patriots hats, down to the Patriots end. And then all of a sudden it switched. Remember it switched at the end. We scored and then we got turnovers. Marlon Jackson back to intercept. So then we run back up to the Colts end and I grab a couple and say, okay, I'm going to try to get some out on the field distributed. And I walk out that one corner tunnel there of the dome. And the if you ask the trivia question, who's the first person to receive the AFC championship Colts hat? You know, knowing they're going to the Super Bowl, I, I said when I gave it to him, you probably des- probably deserve this more than anybody because without you, we're not here. I gave it to Archie Manning. He was standing oh. in the hallway. Because <laughs> without Archie, guess what? There's no you-know-who and there's probably no AFC championship. And did you know Archie well? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I first met him when, at the com- uh, year before Peyton. You see him at the Playboy All-America thing all the time, sure. Gil Brandt. Mm-hmm. And then we used to bring Archie into the early years of Youth Links. Way back the early years of youth things, when Tom Landry came in for a game, Bob Greasy, Archie would come in, and you know back then I think Peyton might have been five. Um, mm. But so you know, he said, "I give Archie the first hat. You get the first hat." And then went out and gave one to Peyton, and he put the hat on AFC champions. And then of course, two weeks later, it's the Super Bowl, and you know, and and uh, it's the Indianapolis, Indiana, which has become my home, are the Super Bowl champions, and it was a very special day. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies. 
a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are here with Eddie White, who was spinning some tales, who was telling us some great stories about his 26 Super Bowl experiences. We just talked about the Colts win. A couple of years later, you're in the exact same stadium, and the Colts lose. What was it like to see your adopted hometown team lose, and what were your activities for that Super Bowl? That Super Bowl was uh, helping out Reebok, uh, but also doing the Kravitz Nettie show. So we were broadcasting that week from there and uh, Radio Row. And I, my, some, I, me- I remember uh, Nick Faldo coming by and, and talking with us. And the only reason we got Nick Faldo is he was dating a girl that used to work with me, uh, work for me at Notre Dame once. So, you know, I, you know, publicists hate when they have people, you know, they have their schedule of where their guests have to be. And all of a sudden, the guy does a sidetrack to do an interview with somebody. <laughs> well, I, I was the king of the sidetracks. I was getting like Tim Brown's walking by and the bus is walking by and, and Mike Golick and Nick Faldo. And, I, we're, and Kravitz and I are grabbing these guys and screwing up. Dame schedules, guys, you know, just grabbing them all to come in and, and, and chat with them. But the, the funniest was that because there, a lot of guys, there's people that are promoting stuff. And we, we remember us interviewing Chris Rock. I was going to say. We had Chris Rock and I think it was David Spade. And Chris Rock was, was hilarious because all we talked about was the Pacers, Pacers and the Knicks. And he was, he was, he was, he was, a, he was a joy to have uh, interviews. So the highlight, obviously, that week for us was the interviews and the radio row and all this stuff because the game was um, – yeah, I thought the Pacers would win, and I thought—I mean, the Colts would win, and it would be great. And it was, I think, a shock to all of our systems that uh, we didn't get that second Lombardi. But at least we got another AFC Championship. And that's that's important. Well, there's a, a very little-known historical event that took place at that Super Bowl. Spangle, this is going to go right to your heart. That is the occasion of my very first tweet. Ever was tw- Twitter was alive then? Uh, it was, it was newborn. Okay, and I was at the Super Bowl uh, because I was working for Mayor Ballard as his deputy chief of staff and comms director. So we went down there, and I remember seeing you, Radio Row. I remember seeing Adam Sandler and Chris Rock and and all sorts of celebrities. Probably and, talked to the mayor. Probably, I'm sure we had. Yeah, one. you guys yeah. did, and uh, uh, because Kravitz and Ballard bonded over being at IU and uh, not at the same time, but attending there. And it was amazing experience, you know, to go to a Super Bowl. Here I am in Miami, a lifelong Dolphins fan. And, uh, but I'm not watching my team. I'm watching the Colts and working for the mayor, but we had the mayor set up to be on the Jim Rome show for a quick hit, five minutes. And Rome was rocking it back then. He was very, very popular. And Radio Row, to your point, I mean, it's just packed with people and celebrities. And I bring the mayor over at the appointed time, and the Rome producer says, we can't have your mayor on. Uh, We've got a celebrity coming on, so I hope you understand. And just at that time, I discover that the uh, celebrity in question is Snoop Dogg. And so my very first uh, tweet is, 
We about had Mayor Ballard on the Jim Rome show, but he got bumped by Snoop Dogg. And to everyone's great surprise, Greg Ballard didn't know who Snoop Dogg was or why this man is so uh, popular and important that the uh, mayor of Indianapolis doesn't get his allotted time. So I had to explain it to him. But to a point of what you said earlier, the Super Bowl is such a gargantuan experience. It's not as big as the Indianapolis 500 just in terms of people at the event, but just everything associated with it is go, go, go. It's at a fever pitch uh, in spinal tap terms. It's turned up to 11. And until you go to one, you really can't understand how big it is and how much activity is involved and and who you'll meet there. Just um, I turned right around at the stadium because I had tickets to the game turned right around and said, excuse me, to somebody I bumped into. It was Jesse Jackson. I was at one of the parties uh, with the mayor. He was inside and I was outside, I think calling my kids or something, sat down on a bench next to this lady. I said, hey, may I sit here? She goes, sure, there's plenty of room. I make my little phone call. And so she and I start making a small talk. And she goes, I'm just waiting on my husband to come back to get me. I'm like, okay, you know, we're chatting about having kids and this and that. Her husband is Rob Lowe. That's a Super Bowl. Yeah. And talk, I was going to ask you, this. The, the point of this little story was to lead into some of the celebrities you've seen at these where you just turn around and you're like, oh my God, that's so-and-so. And they're just right there like you're at the Kroger. I ran into, I say ran into, I ran into Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was 6'7", you know, this, you know, iconic, large figure of strength. Nah, he's short. He's like yeah. me. I mean, and I literally was caught around the corner. I believe it was in San Diego because I think he might have been the – was he the governor, governor of California? Yeah, it was, it was I think it was San Diego Super Bowl. So while we're – Tiger Woods was wearing a, a Raiders hat because he's a big Raiders fan. It was one of our hats because we, we were exclusive Reebok manufacturer NFL apparel. He's wearing a Raiders hat with the Reebok vector covered over in tape. I thought it was cool. I thought it was a badge of honor. Tiger's wearing our hat. And he's such a loyal Nike guy. He has to cover up the Reebok logo. Uh, and then the Raiders got beat anyway. Gruden's uh, Buccaneers beat him. But we were running something happened. I ran out of the uh, one of our booth, and I go around a corner, and I literally, boom, like that, smack right into the chest of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I said, oh, well, sorry. And I looked at myself and well, sorry. I think I called him Arnold. I guess I should call him governor. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, they, you know, stuff happens. You know, stuff happens, but, um, but you know, there, there's just you look at the list of celebrities that we work with the twenty some Super Bowl, especially the ones with the pregame shows, uh, whether it's the singers, whether it's you know from Faith Hill to Beyonce to Mariah Carey. Some of them surprise people. Like Mariah Carey was great. Mariah Carey. Some people like say mean things about her. You know, Vanessa Williams, Whitney Houston, Beyonce, Mariah Carey, Faith Hill, uh, Natalie Cole. Ray Charles, Barry Manilow, Marley Matlin, Gene Simmons, they were all lovely. Lovely, lovely. Then I had the ones I don't like. Garth Brooks, Paul McCartney, the Dixie Chicks, Jewel, Cher, Mary J. Blige, Luther Vandross, forget about it. So, you know, some of them I like, some of them I don't like. But Okay, so uh, hold on a second. You mentioned we can't, you mentioned Paul McCartney. So what was the deal? You just wanted to be treated like Paul McCartney? No, it was, the, it was he was in the pregame show when we had, the, that was one of the wildest Super Bowls um, of all time is the one after um, 9-11. Okay. So that would, that, it was in New Orleans, 
And it was w- it's the New England upset. Thousand over two. the greatest show on turf, Koreans. And the whole thing about that Super Bowl was weird. I don't know if you remember, you know, like the NFL comes out with well back then they used to do Super Bowl logos that were tailored to the market, which I used to love. Now they have now they have this generic Super Bowl logo. But sure. back then you'd have one that, you knew it said San Diego. You, you knew it was New Orleans. You knew it was Arizona. It was a cool Super Bowl logo. Everyone was different. And they do it every year. And they did it every year, so people would keep patches and whatever. And yeah. all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, they went to this generic Super Bowl one, which is kind of like, ugh. Which is interesting because that grew out. The inspiration for that were the patches that each of the space flights came up with for NASA, the Gemini and Apollo and all that. Yeah. Each one had its own special patch. And, you know, even when the Super Bowl was first created, that's in the – heyday of the space race yeah and, and so, so you had these 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 logos so of course the logo is created for the 2002 super bowl in new orleans 9-11 happens the logo is changed stuff that was in the market on whiskey glasses and bumper stickers yeah. and whatever that logo was taken back. All that stuff was brought back. A new logo was done. The United States of America with, with the uh, stars and stripes through it, and that became the new Super Bowl logo. Now, remember, we, we, they lost a game because of 9-11, remember? And they, they sure, had that's to right. Refill a game. So they had to change the date of the Super Bowl. And to get the date, the NFL had to write a check, put a fortune, to an auto dealership that's right. convention to switch their dates so the Super Bowl can stay in New Orleans but be like a week later, okay? So you have a change of a logo. You have a change of a date. I believe that ended up being the first Super Bowl played in the month of February because of the, of the change. So all this stuff's going on. It was um, one of the most intense security things you've ever seen because of the threat to sure. our country. Uh, I remember sitting in a security meeting and we were told because of domes, a dome, that if, if a dirty bomb, I guess they call, sure. go off, yeah. that you get the people out to the exits. And, uh, and outside every exit in New Orleans were these trucks, the skies is like an ice cream truck. In reality, it was a super foam antibacterial thing that people would be coming running out of the building and they'd get shot with this foam, which would clean them up and take the diseases and the stuff away from them. all this stuff was freaky scary. Okay. But we much were, greater than what you experienced during the Gulf war. It's, and that it first seemed Super Bowl that, you mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed because I think in the Gulf war, we kind of had an idea, Hey, we were at war. It's over there. This was here. Here. I think we all still had that thing of like, hey, that was here. And uh, I remember the guy saying, listen, we're doing all this precaution. I remember the guy saying, there will not be. Because I was newly married, and my wife was at the game, going to be at the game. Mm-hmm. And he goes, there will not be a safer building in the United States of America <laughs> than that Superdome in New Orleans. There won't be one. And um, so uh, Mariah Carey delivers a great anthem. It was done earlier, but she was paired with the Boston Pops. So people right off the site were, were complaining because, wait a minute, that's, a, that's favoritism to the New England Patriots who are in the game. <laughs> and, like, you know, and remember, at this point, the Patriots aren't the Patriots that we know right. now. They're just a, how'd you guys get here? And everyone you thought know, they were going to get killed. Because your starting quarterback got hurt, yeah. Bledsoe, yeah. and you guys shouldn't be here. Who's this Brady guy? He, you know, he's not going to do anything because he says he's just filling in. He's second string, right? And um, so you have all this stuff going on, and they had this great uh, – first of all, the, the, the coin flip – was uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and Roger Staubach 
Oh, yeah, that's right. What better says America and football than those two guys? And they had this great pregame tribute to freedom with Barry Manilow, Mark Anthony, Mary J. Blige, you know, all these cultures coming together. One was Paul McCartney. And Paul McCartney wanted us to change some stuff around, and he became very uh, un-American, let me put it that way. So I'm not a Paul McCartney fan. I don't like Paul McCartney. Well, he wrote and, a song after 9-11 that's about, I think it was called Freedom, Yeah. and if the proceeds were supposed to go to the 9-11 victims. I'm I don't sure know whether they, they did sure or they didn't. Did. Um, God bless him. God bless Paul McCartney, wherever he may be. Uh, but the coolest thing, the halftime show, which had nothing to do with, if you remember, was YouTube, mm-hmm. and they brought that, YouTube, and they brought all these these drapings came down, and the name of every 9-11 victim was on the drapings. And I mean, if you go YouTube that, that halftime show and that pregame stuff, it was, um, it was unbelievable. And then they have the game. Here's this can't stop them. Rams with Kurt Warner. They're just going to steamroll and, and kill the Patriots. And, of course, uh, some guy named Venetary kicks a field goal and uh, – and, and they only won. It was twenty to seventeen. That's correct. I mean, the Rams only scored seventeen freaking points, but uh, and that where the, the 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 legacy of Belichick and Brady began. It was in New Orleans. Before I do our self-identify, let me just say, um, Sir Paul, if you'd like to come on the podcast and rebut these charges, yes, uh, he can. Levied by Eddie White, we're welcome. Very welcome to come on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Uh, you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Before we close the podcast uh, this time with Eddie White, someone who's attended 26 Super Bowls. Uh, I do want to relay one story when the Colts were winning the winning, I believe in the fourth quarter against the saints, uh, I got a text from mayor Ballard, my boss at the time and said, if the Colts win, hurry and get down to my seat. We're flying home on the Colts plane. I've never rooted for anyone to win more fervently then I rooted for the Colts to win that game so I could have had the experience of riding home on the Super Bowl-winning airplane back to Indianapolis. So unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. That would have been fun. A few years later, Super Bowl forty-six, the city of Indianapolis redefined what it meant to be a Super Bowl host in ways that no one could have predicted, although I'm pretty sure that uh, there are a lot of people who were convinced that Indianapolis was going to knock it out of the park as we do for so many big events in our history. Eddie, you were part of that committee. You were heavily involved. Talk to us a little bit about your experience and how proud you remain to this day of how Indianapolis performed on the world stage. Well, I'll go back about, 15 Super Bowls before that one. And late one night, sitting in the office of a guy named Jim Steig, who grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and is the guy that really built the Super Bowl into what it is today, per the instructions of Pete Rozelle. It was Jim Steig who had the idea that we're going to have pregame shows, not just 
nothing. We were asking you know, every year the price went from 100 to 200 to 400 to 500 to $1,000 to 1500 face value. We have to do something to make this. He's the one that put uh, – remember, it used to have Super Bowls. Everybody got a seat cushion with the Super Bowl logo on it. It was a packet there with commemorative cards, and then you'd get the, the portable radio that was in there that you'd be able to plug That's into. Right. And you better walk in. Like, I remember uh, in New Orleans, make sure that the four entrances, when you walked in and you're in this long line to go through security, there was a band playing that you were familiar with. And it made so he took the pregame. And if you look before Bob Best took it over with, with, with Jim, it was there was nothing. And then there was our run of 15 to 16, 18, and then kind of the NFL's gone away from that. But then the, the the coin flip, the 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 the, the, the detail, like in, in Arizona, uh, they did a thing where they they had the football like we did with the basketball, go from county to county throughout the state of Arizona, and they wanted the perfect person who would be the guy to bring it into the stadium. This is two days before, you know, we knew where the football was, we couldn't figure out. We found out Mike Haynes, Mike Haynes played on Super Bowl championship, mm-hmm. played in the Super Bowl Raider uh, from Arizona State. Where is he? Oh, he works for Callaway. All right, they're in Carlsbad. But he was at a show in Florida. The NFL flew him in Super Bowl Saturday night to be the guy that brought it in on Sunday. Jim Steig wouldn't miss a beat to make everything so perfect. Well, he was from Fort Wayne. And 15, 18 years before the Super Bowl ever came to Indiana, we'd be sitting there late in his office, could be talking about stuff and stuff that happened that day, stuff we got to do tomorrow, what, what, what's, the, what's the number for attendance going to be, blah, 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 blah. We talked about what makes a great Super Bowl. We talked about Minnesota. Never got above zero, but was a great Super Bowl because of the people of Minnesota. And we talked about it. I lived there then. He used to live here. And we talked about, what if a Super Bowl ever came to Indiana? We both said, hit it out of the park. The way the Hoosiers do stuff, the hospitality, the downtown would be great. He goes, the stadium's too small. Again, we're talking about the Dome. This is 15, 16, 17 years before we got Super Bowl. But we all, he agreed. This is the guy that ran the freaking game. Said it would be, it would be. Maybe the best Super Bowl ever. And we all thought that. And then you go years later, and then we don't get the one we're supposed to get. And karma, Jerry gets it. And they get the ice storm. The Super Bowl, all the parties are canceled. People are stuck in Iowa. They can't get anywhere. Has all the problems with the stadium. We get it a year later than we're supposed to. Right? (laughs) Right? And then we get it. And we have the weather. And we have the zip line. And we have the compelling David and Goliath again. Here we go. Here they go. These guys get together. You know, I, I remember telling Tom Coughlin, I said, Coach, there'd be 100 Super Bowls. You're going to set the Super Bowl record. He goes, what's that? I go, least amount of miles traveled from team hotel to practice, team hotel to media duties, team hotel to game site. Add it up. I don't even think you're 10 miles, Coach. And we talked about Super Bowls where you're going 50 miles out of the way and 35 miles, and you're in traffic for an hour and a half. You talked to Brian Billick, who was then as an announcer, coached and won a Super Bowl with Baltimore. You talked to John Clayton, Hall of Fame football writer. You talked to Peter King. You talked to anybody. They knew that the city, the, the bones of the city, would be fantastic because it's all right there. We do the combine better than anybody could ever do the combine. Everything is right there. Boom. When that weather cooperated – and then you had a great game again, you know, Patriots losing, okay? <laughs> uh, it was absolutely perfect. So for the people in Indiana, no, we weren't surprised. We knew it would be great. It's like we know the, the, uh, the NBA All-Star game. There's a bazillion of them. The best one will be the one that's here because it's here. Uh, whenever they have the national championship game, that's coming up in a couple of years from now, um, it'll be the best ever. 
we're not boastful. We're just telling the truth. I mean, this is what Indiana and Hoosiers, that's what we do. We all come together. It doesn't matter what political party, where we're from, whether from Beach Grove or Carmel, whatever. We come together for the greater good, and that's making our city put on sports events like nobody. ESPN sports personality and host Mike Greenberg tweeted a while ago, but it's still apt. Indianapolis is the best big game city in the country. You've been to every city, been to, I'm assuming, you've been to 26 big game Super Bowls, countless other events. Where would you rank us? Well, I think it's not, it, it, if you say overall enjoyment and convenience for the teams, their fans, yeah, I'd say it's number one. Um, I think I put New Orleans up there because same type of thing, everything's downtown. Um, yeah, beautiful setting. I, I mentioned I love Pasadena. They haven't been, they haven't been to Pasadena in years. May ne- they may never go back to Pasadena. Uh, but as, if you're you're asking fans to pay a lot of money for tickets, a lot of money for hotels, and you want to give them the best time, I, I don't think anybody does it better than the, the Hoosier hospitality of Indianapolis. And I think that's why we got an all-star game. That's why we got the national football championship game and we got final fours. It's because, like you said, Mike Greenberg and anybody that's been here, we do it better than anybody. And I've been to every NFL city. I mean, you, you see the pluses and minuses to every, whether it's New Orleans or it's, you know, Phoenix, you know, Los Angeles. Yeah, they may be bigger. They may have better weather, you know, for more months of the year. But for just a, a giving someone a three- or four-day experience, Regardless of the sport, could be swimming, could be golf. Remember, we had the BMW here mm-hmm. with the with the seventy top world's greatest golfers. Pick the sport. Nobody does it better than here, Central Indiana. Nobody. Eddie White has attended twenty six Super Bowls. This is his second appearance on the Leaders and Legends podcast. If you want entertainment and you want great stories from one of the most well liked and fun people you've ever meet. Seek out anything that Eddie White is doing. Seek out anything that Eddie White is involved in, and you will understand why everybody wants to be a part of your world, Eddie. Thank you very much for your time. You want one more? You want one more story that you can't get anywhere else? Bonus story. Bonus story. 1995, Miami. We began at Joe Robbie. We're going to leave it at Joe Bryant. The San Francisco 49ers crushed San Diego, okay? The anthem was sung by Kathy Lee Gifford, okay? Now, I told you who used to, who, who, who else has sung the anthem, right? Beyonce, Whitney Houston, Vanessa Williams, Mariah Carey, Faith Hill, like Kathy Lee Gifford, okay? Who doesn't belong in the party, right? <laughs> Kathy Lee Gifford, okay? The commissioner, Tadley Boo, is at a party. Early in the fall, Frank Gifford saunters over and says, hey, my wife, she's on TV with Regis. She'd like to sing the anthem. Tagley Boo says, done deal. The NFL, Jim Stig and his guys are working behind the scenes for years and years and years and years to get Barbara Streisand. They get her. They call the commish. We got Barbara. Commish says, too late. I gave it to Kathleen Gifford. What? So we're like, okay. So they're like, hopefully this will never get out. Week before the Super Bowl, New York Post, there's a blurb. 
Barbara Streisand was supposed to be singing the anthem, but Kathy Lee Gifford is going to sing it. So it becomes kind of a story. So as good PR people, get with Frank. Frank, you know, they're doing the game. Gift's doing the game, the Super Bowl. Okay. So, and he does the introductions, and he wants to introduce his wife. So we're like, okay, we got to write the introductions for you because there may be a reaction. You know, that's the talk. Barbara Streisand should be here. So we write it, and we said something like, and now please join us at the National Anthem. Uh, it'll be sung by a recording artist, da-da-da-da, Kathy Gifford, and will be signed by Miss America Heather Whitestone. So if people would start to boo or react, they're going to hear, signed by Miss America Heather Whitestone. So, right? PR guys, right? We're planning for the sense. bad stuff that could happen. Okay. Comes a moment of time. It's time. Frank goes off cue cards and says something along these lines and now the national anthem will be signed by heather whitestone doesn't say who she is and will be sung by my wife kathy lee gifford and if you listen you hear (laughs) (laughs) and people in the stands kind of so the message there for people if you have a good pr guy listen to him (laughs) <laughs> they know what the hell they're doing, and you can, but but uh, that's one of those inside stories that you probably won't hear anywhere else in the world. Is uh, I got a ba- million of them. Is Barbara Streisand being bumped by Kathy Lee Gifford worse than Greg Ballard being bumped by Snoop Dogg? That's a. Let me think about that. But I think it's about equal. <laughs> I, I I think it's about equal. Let let so let's see the so the bumpies would be Barbara Streisand and Mayor Ballard. Correct. So would you rather have dinner with those two or would you have dinner with Kathy Lee Gifford and Snoop Dogg? I rest my case. I'm going with the bumpies. <laughs> Eddie, thank you so very much for sharing your experiences and your stories. We love having you on, and if there's any excuse to have you on again, we're going to take it. Thank, thank you. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.